0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener Caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Residents of Bone Lane were settling in for the night, preparing dinner and searching for something good to watch on television. It was March 15th, 1994, a quiet Tuesday evening in Wakefield, West Yorkshire. Some employees at Green's Printers, which overlooked the neighbourhood, were working late. Shortly after 6pm, One of the silk-screen print workers noticed a man approaching a red-brick end-of-terrace property. The home belonged to 52-year-old Wendy Speaks. The employee watched the man from afar as he talked to Wendy at her front door. She was wearing slippers and her arms were folded. The man then walked around the side of the property. Wendy stood on her low brick wall and peered down the side of the house. No more than a minute later, he reappeared, once again at the front door. He stepped into the doorway and then glanced around, to ensure that nobody was watching. Although the print worker wanted to know more about what was happening, he was needed back at work. Sometime later, he glanced out of the window once more. The same man from earlier was spotted leaving Wendy Speaks' home. He walked for a couple of yards, then broke into a sprint. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 21 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Wendy Speaks was a divorced mother of two adult children, 31-year-old Tracy and 29-year-old Leah. While the girls were growing up, Wendy took on the role of mother and father. She worked hard to provide for her family and made ends meet by working multiple jobs. They did not have much, but Wendy always prioritised her children. Speaking about her mother, Tracy later recalled to reporter Alison Maloney, She didn't earn a lot, but we always got looked after. She would give me her last piece of bread and go hungry herself. When Wendy's children grew up, Tracy and Leah moved away, but the trio spoke on the phone almost every day and faced the good and the bad together. They had a nickname for themselves, the Three Musketeers. In July 1993, Wendy gave Tracy away at her wedding and treated the guest to a passionate speech. Tracy said, My mum was a very special person. She showed people that extra bit of kindness. She was always there for people. Wendy Speaks lived a quiet life at her terraced home on Bowl Lane she was described as a thrifty woman who enjoyed spending time with her daughters. Most days followed a similar pattern. Wendy was something of a creature of habit. In the morning, she got the bus to Osset, where she was employed as a receptionist for albatross marketing. At the weekends, for some extra cash... She also worked as a barmaid and waitress at the Foresters Arms pub. But by 1994, Wendy was looking forward to a change. She had just handed in her notice at work and was preparing to sell her home in Wakefield. She planned on moving to be closer to Tracy, who lived in Essex. One day, it had dawned on Wendy that she was only working to keep her house. It seemed pointless for her to be living alone while her daughters lived elsewhere. Wendy was determined to move, and she had been searching for the perfect home in Essex with assistance from Tracy. When Tracy learned that she was pregnant... Wendy was even more intent on moving closer to her daughters and grandchildren as soon as possible. The morning after, the printer employee witnessed the odd conversation between Wendy and an unknown visitor. The receptionist uncharacteristically did not turn up for work. Wendy was scheduled to begin her shift in Osset at 9am. Her colleagues chatted amongst themselves, speculating as to whether Wendy was unwell. She was known to be dependable. Even if Wendy was sick, she would have called in. Wendy's colleagues rang her home, but there was no answer. By 10am, an hour after she was due to be in the office and with no word from Wendy, her workmates grew concerned. A member of staff, Deborah Crosley, took on the job of phoning Wendy's emergency contact, one of her daughters. Tracy was told her mother had not shown up for work, and no one in the office had been able to find out where she was. Recalling how she felt, Tracy later told the Sun newspaper, I instantly knew something was wrong because my mum was very loyal and hard-working, not the sort of lady to skive off, and if she was unwell, she would have called me. Throughout that morning, Tracy continued to ring her mother at home, but Wendy never answered. Deborah Crosley then contacted Wendy's father, Robert. He had not heard from his daughter either. At this point... The colleagues talked amongst themselves and decided that somebody would drive over to Wendy's home to check on her. Deborah called Robert once more, and he said that he would accompany her on the visit. The pair met outside Wendy's home and approached the front door. Deborah and Robert tried the door, and they realised it was not secured. Their suspicions were immediately aroused. Wendy was a safety-conscious woman who always ensured that her doors were locked. As they entered the home, nothing appeared to be amiss, but they knew something was wrong. A cupboard downstairs beside the conservatory was wide open. Wendy's shoes were strewn across the floor, at odds with the organised home. Deborah and Robert proceeded cautiously through the property, calling out Wendy's name. There was no response. Robert then walked up the stairs to look for his daughter, and Deborah waited downstairs. Now in the hallway, Robert decided to enter a bedroom at the back of the house. It was in that room he stumbled across an awful sight – Something a father should never have to see. Vivid shades of deep red blood covered the floor in dense pools around Wendy. Her body was curled up at the foot of the bed as if she was recoiling in horror, but it was evident she was dead, brutally murdered in her own home. It transpired that Wendy had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck and back with a four-inch knife. There was also evidence she had been sexually assaulted. Robert knew that his daughter was well beyond saving. She was cold to the touch, and rigor mortis had set in. Robert and Deborah bolted from the home and called 999. Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor was among the first officers to arrive at the scene. He observed the open cupboard and the shoes strewn across the floor, just as Richard and Deborah had described. The detective then continued upstairs and into the bedroom, where Wendy's body lay. Curiously, he noted that Wendy was wearing a pair of tatty, well-worn blue mule-type sandals. He made a note that they were, quote, tacky. Wendy was a fashionable woman, and the shoes were not something she would have owned. They were out of place among her other clothing. Detective Superintendent Taylor continued scanning the crime scene. On top of a chest of drawers near Wendy's body, he noticed a pair of black stiletto shoes. These belonged to Wendy, and they had been carefully placed on top of the drawers. The property was cordoned off with crime scene tape as forensic experts were called in to examine the home further. They entered the bedroom and quickly got to work. As they searched around Wendy's body, they noticed a small piece of pink candle wick bedspread. It was determined the material had been used as a gag. Near the bedspread was a pair of sheer black stockings that were tied in loops. Evidence indicated the stockings had been used to bind the victim. Forensic experts collected the evidence and then inspected the home from top to bottom for fingerprints. They got their first lead in the form of a partial fingerprint on the handle of Wendy's front door. Was it from her killer? Further evidence was left behind at the scene in the form of blood spatter on Wendy's blouse. The constabulary working on the investigation knew they were under the spotlight. Years earlier, the Yorkshire police had been criticised for how they handled the infamous Yorkshire Ripper case. Wendy Speaks' murder brought back chilling reminders of the serial killer, and the police were determined to catch the person responsible. The investigation into Wendy's murder was headed by Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor. Taylor had an impressive track record. He had worked on more than 40 homicide cases. None of them had gone unsolved. He was instrumental in capturing Michael Sams, who kidnapped and killed Julie Dart in 1991 and then kidnapped Stephanie Slater in 1992. Taylor had also been part of the team that apprehended Yorkshire ripper Peter Sutcliffe. The first point of action for the police was to retrace Wendy Speaks' last known movements and narrow down the time frame in which she was killed. Investigators were able to establish that Wendy was last seen on March 15th. She had travelled home from work in Osset on the number 126 bus. She got off outside the Midland Bank in Westgate. From here, Wendy walked the ten minutes to her home in Wakefield, arriving around 6pm. Shortly after, the employee at Green Printer saw her speaking to an unknown male at the front door. The employee reported this sighting to the police, describing the man at around 5 feet 6 inches tall with a medium to slim build. He was aged between 35 and 45 years old and had dark brown hair that was balding at the back. The man was wearing a grey jacket with distinctive hoops around the arms, blue jeans and white plimsolls there was no evidence that Wendy's home had been broken into, leading police to strongly believe that the killer was the man observed by the employee. They theorised that when he returned to Wendy's front door, the man barged in when she unlocked it. As a description of the suspect was released by the media, Police received a tip. Around an hour before Wendy Speaks was killed, a 24-year-old woman in the Wakefield suburb of Flanshaw heard a knock at the front door. She lived around one and a half miles away from Wendy's home. The woman recalled opening the door and was confused to see a man she did not know standing before her. He matched the description of the suspect seen at Wendy's front door on the night of her murder. The unfamiliar man told the Flanshaw resident that he was struggling to find his grandfather's address. He said he had his telephone number and asked if he could come inside and use the woman's phone to contact him. The young woman became suspicious, noticing the paper on which an address was meant to be printed was in fact blank. Realising something was off about the situation, she slammed the door in the man's face. The woman then ran to look out the front window to see if he had gone, and the man was already running away down the road. Police speculated that this individual could be the killer, and it was only because he could not access the property in Flanshaw that he set his sights on Wendy's speaks. Another line of inquiry the police were exploring was the strange findings at the crime scene. Wendy's family said the shoes on Wendy's feet did not belong to her. Her daughter, Tracy, said, ''There is no way in the world she would have worn those shoes.'' They were tarty things, and everything had to match with mum. She wore gold jewellery, but it was all very tasteful. This revelation led police to theorise that Wendy's killer had brought the shoes along with him and forced Wendy to put them on before he killed her. After changing shoes, the killer then placed a pair of Wendy's shoes on the chest of drawers in the bedroom. Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor said. The way the shoes were placed in the bedroom suggests he carefully and callously set the scene for this horrific crime. In addition, the police also believed that the killer had brought along the piece of pink-handle-wick bedspread material found near Wendy's body and the denier sheer black stockings. These items had been used to bind and gag Wendy indicating premeditation. Before fleeing from Wendy's home, investigators believed the killer had stolen a pair of shoes from the cupboard downstairs, hence the shoes strewn around the floor. The peculiarities found at the scene would help build a profile of the elusive killer. Detective Superintendent Taylor went on to say, We know we are searching for someone with a sexual perversion. He has a foot fetish, and he made Mrs. Speaks wear a pair of shoes he had brought with him on the day he murdered her. Locals were on edge as the spectre of a sadistic serial killer loomed over the community. Women were too afraid to walk anywhere alone, out of fear they would become the next target. Just a couple of days after Wendy Speaks' body was found, a woman in Wakefield heard a knock at her front door during the evening. She was aware of what had happened after seeing an article in a newspaper, so she was apprehensive about answering the door to an unexpected caller. Without opening the door, she called out to ask who was there. It was a man, and she did not recognize his voice. He inquired as to whether he could use her telephone. The woman immediately said no and then phoned the police. Her quick thinking may have saved her life. Police announced to the media that they speculated the man on the other side of the door may have been Wendy Speaks' killer, attempting to take his second victim. Tragically, in early August 1994, 86-year-old Amy Shepard was found dead in the lounge of her home at Folly Hall Gardens in Whipsy Bradford. Amy was a fiercely independent and house-proud woman. She was a familiar face within the local community and was safety-conscious, much like Wendy. Amy had been stabbed with a kitchen knife and strangled with a cord. She had also been subjected to a series of vicious sexual assaults. Police who investigated the crime scene said there were several similarities between Amy Shepard's murder and the murder of Wendy Speaks. Detective Superintendent Malcolm Mawson stated, We have been comparing notes with our colleagues who are investigating the Wendy Speaks murder and contact will continue. Just two months later, there would be another vicious knife attack. On October 11th, residents on Longdale's Road in Lincoln called the police after hearing a burglar alarm which had continued to blare for several hours. Officers responded to the scene and inside the property they found the lifeless body of Kathleen Hempsell. After dropping her daughter off at school, The 40-year-old had been attacked and stabbed to death. Some newspapers began to report that there was a triple killer on the run, targeting women throughout England. Just the following day, however, police working on the three homicides announced that despite some similarities, they were searching for different killers. It was an even more terrifying prospect for the communities involved. There was not just one sadistic killer mingling among the reputable residents, but possibly three. As the months wore on, the tips into Wendy Speaks' murder continued to trickle in but nothing concrete that could point to a viable suspect in the case. In March 1995, police investigating the murder requested assistance from Interpol. A year of intense investigation and examination had failed to match the unknown fingerprint to a suspect. It was hoped that Interpol could assist with the identification but they too struggled to find a match. By the following year, police had interviewed around 11,000 people. Over 3,500 blood samples had been taken from persons of interest in the case. However, none came back as a match. Investigators strongly suspected that Wendy was the victim of a killer with a shoe fetish. This line of inquiry took them into the world of paraphilias. Officers made contact with sex workers in the area, hoping they could name some clients with a sexual predilection for shoes and feet. It was not going to be an easy task. After a fetish for underwear, a fetish for shoes and feet was the second most common paraphilia. While building a profile of Wendy's killer, police were told by psychiatrists that the killer may have been impotent in normal relationships unless footwear was involved in sexual acts. The public were asked to get in touch if they knew anybody who might fit the profile of Wendy Speaks' killer. Discussing the profile on the person they thought was responsible... Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Johnston said he is likely to have been violent towards previous sexual partners and his fascination with lady shoes is likely to have become evident during the relationship. Offender profilers tell us there is something distinctive and disturbing about this man that would make women stand back. It would be something intangible but enough to send out danger signals. There is a strong possibility of a pattern of offending which may go back to early childhood. It would probably have started with the theft of knickers from washing lines and gradually built up to murder. Police were also considering the possibility that Wendy Speaks may have been previously stalked by her killer. As Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor said, how did the man know when he knocked on Wendy's door that an 18-stone Wakefield Trinity prop forward wasn't having his tea or was due home? Working on this theory, investigators considered that the killer may have monitored Wendy from the Cliff Tree pub, which was located near her home. They wondered if her killer had stalked her, Became familiar with her routine and knew that she lived alone. According to Wendy's daughters, as soon as she arrived home from work, she would usually remove her makeup and shower. But when Wendy's body was found, she was still wearing a full face of makeup and her work clothing. This only further compounded the belief that Wendy had been stalked by her killer or at least followed home. There was an immense fear among police and the community that the killer would strike again in order to fulfil his fantasies. Tracy and Leah prayed their mother's killer would be brought to justice. Following the murder, they had returned to the home where she was killed. Upon entering the living room, they saw that their Mother's Day cards were still on the mantelpiece. It was a poignant reminder of just how fragile life can be. As the months turned to years, they returned to some semblance of normality. However, the reminder that their mother's murderer was still out there was never far from their minds. Tracy was celebrating her third wedding anniversary in July 1996, but she could not bring herself to watch the wedding video. Tracy said to the Sunday people, I feel absolute hatred for the man who did this. They have robbed me of my mother and my little daughter of her granny. Tracy had named her daughter Emmeline Wendy, in honour of Emmeline's great grandmother and grandfather. Tracy continued, What makes me bitter is that my mum has missed out on Emmeline's birth and growing up. She has missed out on her first tooth, her first steps. She would have been there for all that. Emmeline grew up knowing her grandmother only through a photograph. Each night she kissed the picture, and said, Night, night, Nan. It broke Tracy's heart and she was dogged in her determination for justice to be served. She pleaded with the public for information. I would urge anyone who knows anything about my mum's murder to come forward. Not for me, but for my mum's granddaughter. Then when she grows up I can say to her, this was the man who was put in prison for what he did to your grandma, and this was his name. The police had been hoping to catch Wendy Speaks' killer, but by 1998 all the leads had dried up and the case went cold. However, that year a message was found scribbled on a toilet door in a local hospital. It chillingly read, The killer of Wendy Speaks is alive and well. Another message was found shortly thereafter on the wall of a toilet in a local pub. The contents of the message was never publicly disclosed, but according to sources it gloated about the gruesome murder. Another two years would pass without any developments. By 2000, forensic science had advanced tremendously. This included fingerprint technology. While the leads had all but dried up, the police routinely ran the unidentified partial fingerprint from the crime scene through the national database. In March, the prints were once again processed. But this time, there was a match. 39-year-old Christopher Farrah.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Christopher Farrow was a divorced painter and the father of two children. By 1994, he was living on Bradford's Thorpe Edge estate. At the time he was in a relationship, but it was tumultuous and his sex life was non-existent. Farrow had begun fantasising about women wearing specific shoes and he had developed negative views about females. Soon enough, the seemingly innocent desire for footwear began to devolve into violence. The sadistic fantasies culminated on March 15th, 1994. That afternoon, Christopher Farrow left his home in search of a victim. He was armed with a knife and a pair of mule-type sandals he had purchased at a charity shop. He first of all stopped in a super store and purchased a pair of sheer black stockings for 85 pence. He stuffed the stockings into his pocket and continued on his route. Farrow already had a potential victim in mind, a 24 year old woman who lived in the Flanshaw district. He had been stalking her for quite some time and knew her routine. He also knew that she lived alone. Shortly before 5 pm, he approached the front door. When she answered, Pharaoh pretended he had got lost while looking for his grandfather's home. He asked if he could use her phone. The woman refused to let Pharaoh in and slammed the door in his face. She was unaware that she had just saved her own life. Undeterred, Pharaoh continued in pursuit of another victim. Just before 6 pm, Barrow observed Wendy speaks as she got off the bus and walked home alone. Barrow followed her the short distance. He stood nearby and watched Wendy use her keys to open the front door. He realised that she lived alone before he accessed the property after asking to use the phone. Once inside, Burrow ordered Wendy to remove her footwear. He forced her to put on the pair of blue mule-type sandals he had brought along with him and then ordered Wendy up the stairs and into her bedroom. Burrow then bound her hands with a pair of black stockings purchased that afternoon. He gagged her with a part of a candlewick bedspread which he had also brought with him. With Wendy immobile, mobile, Farrow then placed a pair of her black stiletto shoes on a chest of drawers near the bed before he walked back over to her. He was aroused by the sight of the shoes. Farrow proceeded to rape Wendy, and during the frenzied attack he stabbed her a total of eleven times, nine in the back and shoulders, and twice in the neck. Before fleeing the scene, Farrow rummaged through a cupboard downstairs and stole a pair of black court shoes with a fluted edge. Life for Christopher Farrow continued like normal, as Wendy's family were forced to pick up the pieces. Farrow had managed to evade detection for six years. But it was a boast about drink driving in 1996 that ultimately led to his downfall. While drinking in a Bradford pub, Farrow began to brag about the incident. He was completely unaware that he was sitting beside a police officer who overheard the entire conversation. Farrow was arrested and subsequently convicted of the offence. The conviction meant that he needed to provide his fingerprints. It was not until four years later that Farrow's prints came back as a match to the unknown partial print on Wendy Speaks' front door. When the discovery was made, Farrow was arrested at his home in the Leeds suburb of Cookridge, where he had been living with a newly pregnant girlfriend and her child. Farrow agreed to give a blood sample, which enabled his DNA profile to be obtained. The results showed that there was only a 1 in 30 million chance that the blood found on Wendy's blouse did not belong to him. The evidence against Farrow was overwhelming, and he pleaded guilty to the murder and rape of Wendy Speaks. He also pleaded guilty to the attempted burglary of another woman's home less than an hour before Wendy was killed. On November 14th, 2000, Christopher Farrow arrived at Leeds Crown Court to learn his fate. Robert Smith QC detailed the events leading up to Wendy Speaks' murder. The prosecutor revealed that Farrow had intended to attack another person that day, the woman in the Flanshaw district. He had been stalking this woman for several days, making notes of her schedule to ensure she was alone. But when she did not let him into her home, Farrow walked around until he noticed Wendy getting off the bus. He told the police that Wendy was, quote, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Farrow almost tried to justify what he had done by further explaining to investigators that at the time, he was feeling angry because of his turbulent relationship at home and lack of sex. Farrow stated, I had been thinking how crap my life was. My sex life was absolute zero and I had a lot of upset and anger towards my girlfriend. I decided to do something that day to someone. I just wanted someone to suffer the same way as I was feeling. Farrow's defence counsel Douglas Hogg QC argued that his client was not a serial offender. Farrow had explained that after he had raped Wendy in her home, He panicked after realising that she would be able to identify him. He said that it was only then he decided he would kill Wendy. Barrow told a police officer, I'm a rapist who killed, I'm not a murderer who raped. Judge Mr Justice Moreland ultimately sentenced Christopher Farrow to life in prison with two concurrent 14-year sentences for rape and buggery and four years for attempted burglary. He was ordered to serve at least 18 years before he could be considered for parole. In handing down the sentence, Mr Justice Moreland said... The woman who was your intended victim was fortunate you failed to gain entry into her house. But you then located a second victim, another complete stranger, and you forced your way into her house. The judge also recommended to the Home Secretary that Pharaoh not be released from prison for, quote, "...very, very many years." Tracy and Leo were brought to tears during the sentencing hearing. It had been a long six years for the family, but finally their mother's killer had been unmasked. Outside of court, Tracy said, Life should mean life, and he should never, ever, ever come out because he is such a danger to all women. As Christopher Farrow began his sentence, Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Johnston, who was involved in the investigation, shared his belief that Farrow would have become a serial rapist or serial killer if he had not been caught. Furthermore, Johnston announced that the inquiry into Farrow was still active. Experts in the field of criminal psychology suggested that Wendy Speaks' killer likely had a history of similar offending. It was vital that they identify any other crimes that he may have been involved with. DCS Johnston went on to say, It is possible there are other serious crimes probably committed before Wendy's murder. Police began looking into Farrow's past to see if there were any other similar unsolved cases that might be connected. So where are we now? In July 2018... Christopher Farrow applied for parole. Wendy Speak's daughter Tracy drove from her home in Essex to Hull Prison to personally read a victim personal statement to the parole board. She hoped that it would sway them enough to deny Farrow parole. In the statement, Tracy described the years of grief and anguish Farrow had put their entire family through. She said, The pain of living with the injustice of the life sentence not meaning life in prison when he took my mum's life without a second thought would be impossible for me to live with. I'm sure that the feelings of dread and panic attacks would escalate. Looking over my shoulder knowing he was no longer in prison would affect the life I have managed to build back up since 1994. Tracy told members of the parole board that if Faro were released on license, then the local community would be living in terror. She concluded, A pair of mum's shoes were never found, and to this day, I believe he hid them as a trophy for his next victim. However, this statement was not enough. By December, Christopher Farrow was moved from HMP Hull to a Category D open prison in preparation for his release. The decision outraged Tracy and Leah, who had been campaigning to keep Farrow in prison for the rest of his life. Tracy announced that she believed the convicted killer was still a dangerous man and would strike again if granted his freedom she said. People need to be reminded of what he has done, particularly people in Leeds and Wakefield if he is going to move back there. Why should he have the right to freedom after what he has done? He has shown no remorse. Right from committing this offence in 1994 up until the day he is going to be released, he has never said sorry. In May 2019, Raymond Kay was convicted of murdering Amy Shepherd at her home in Wibsey two and a half decades earlier. Kay knew his victim as he had previously delivered food to the 86-year-old, and this was how he was able to access the property. Kay was only linked to the killing after advances were made in DNA analysis. The exact circumstances behind the brutal murder are not known. However, it is theorised that the career criminal was disturbed while in the commission of a crime. Raymond Kay was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 17 years behind bars. The 70-year-old was told he would likely die in prison. The murder of Kathleen Hempsall remains unsolved. It is understood the part time midwife had disturbed some intruders and activated her burglar alarm, but was killed as a way to silence her. Two young men and a teenager were charged in connection with the killing. The teenager pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting a burglary, and one of the young men was convicted of murder. However, the verdict was later overturned on appeal. No further arrests have been made. By June 2019, Christopher Farrow was granted escorted leave from North Sea Camp Open Prison. The revelation was crushing to Wendy's loved ones and the community as a whole. Many would back Tracy and Leah's campaign to keep Farrow incarcerated. One of their supporters was David Atkit. David strongly believed that his late wife Brenda may have been an intended victim of Farrow. Back in January 1994, Brenda caught a bus from Huddersfield to her home in Meltham. Shortly after Brenda arrived, there was a knock on the front door. She opened the door to find a man she didn't recognise. He asked if he could use her phone. As Brenda stared at the man more closely, she realised he had been sitting near her on the bus. Before Brenda even had time to react, the man pushed himself into her home, but Brenda was able to alert a neighbour and the man fled. When Christopher Farrow was arrested, Brenda was adamant that he was the man who attempted to get into her home on that cold winter morning. That day, she had been wearing high heels. Unfortunately, Brenda passed away in 2013, but David said, I feel that I have to fight this case on my wife's behalf. Brenda always wore high heels. She was a petite woman with a good figure and was followed home on the bus. When Wendy Speaks was murdered, we saw a photo fit on TV of the suspect. Brenda said, that's him, no doubt, and we rang the police. David Atkitt shared his belief that Meltham was a trial run for Pharaoh to see how easily he could slip into someone's home. I think he was a serial predator, David said, and I dread to think what would happen if he gets out. It's frightening. In a bid to keep Pharaoh locked up, Tracy and Leah began crowdfunding to raise money for a judicial review if a decision was made to grant Christopher Farrow parole. By then, Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Johnston had retired, but he went on record to express concern about Farrow being released. He said there were a number of questions that Farrow refused to answer, And just because they could never find any concrete evidence that Farrow had committed other crimes, that did not necessarily mean he hadn't. Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor, who was also retired, agreed. Offering his thoughts about Farrow, Taylor stated, He's an evil, sadistic, murdering rapist. How many more victims are out there? I do not know. The former detective superintendent suggested that Farrow's victims may not have come forward due to the stigma surrounding sexual assaults and rapes at the time. Ultimately, the parole board announced that Christopher Farrow was not to be released just yet, but an inmate isn't moved to an open prison without the prospect of being released. The board said that Farrow, quote, needed to progress through an open prison to help test him for future release. With the prospect of a convicted rapist and killer seeing the outside world, it was decided that a team of officers would take another look into the crimes Farrow may have committed. In December 2020, Christopher Farrow was again denied parole. In their conclusion, the parole board wrote, After considering the circumstances of his offending, the progress made while in custody and the other evidence presented at the hearing and in the dossier, the panel was not satisfied that Mr. Farrow was suitable for release. It was determined that while Farrow's behaviour in prison had not caused any concerns, and he had taken part in programs to address his sexual offending. His probation officers and officials overseeing his case could not support his release. They found that more work needed to be carried out to address the risks that Farrow could pose if he were granted parole. The decision was a welcome relief to Wendy Speaks' family. Tracy remarked, It is not an easy process to endure, but I am my mother's daughter and I will not let my mum down. I will continue to be strong and fight for justice for my mum and continue the campaign for Christopher Farrow to remain in prison until he dies. Only then will I get closure from this living nightmare. Christopher Farrow's next parole hearing is scheduled for some time before Christmas of this year. He's still under investigation by a cold case review team, who are looking at the possibility that he might be linked to several unsolved crimes. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.